Hello everyone and welcome back to Pan Am, a podcast that explores Paris's curious history. Today is our final, well, for the time being, episode on street signs that give roads their names. So come with me to discover more about the dragons, princesses, unicorns and ducks of Paris. We are here on the Rue de Canet, Duckling Street, in the 6th arrondissement, not to be confused with the old Rue de Trois Canet, 3 Duckling Street, which used to be on the Ile de la Cité before Haussmann's renovations, which saw the majority of the streets on the island torn down. Despite the sweet image of ducklings, however, it seems it was a rather grim little alley. It was next to the even better named Rue de la Licorne, Unicorn Street, which, yes, you guessed it, also got its name from a shop sign, and also sadly no longer exists. But let's get back to our ducklings in the sixth. Today, it's a charming, narrow little road which goes from the Saint-Sulpice Church towards the Boulevard Saint-Germain. This whole neighbourhood is full of narrow, winding streets which seem to have been missed by housemen altogether, with evocative names like Princess Street or Rue de Four, Oven Street, so named after the ovens people use to bake their bread. Walking around here, it feels as if we're travelling back in time to an older Paris, and it's very nice for us modern Parisians to take a walk through these picturesque roads, imagining ourselves in the colourful past. However, before being called Duckling Street, it had a number of names, including Trou Punaise, which I first thought translated to Stinky Hole. But after some research, I discovered that Trou Punaise were actually a 13th century invention and an attempt to clean the streets by encouraging people to, instead of throwing their waste out the windows into the middle of the streets, put them down a sort of drainage pit. Basically, a stinky hole. Sadly, this just resulted in polluting the water further. These true would be used a hundred odd years until Henry II abolished them. It reminds us that what is charming today may have been smelly and congested and inconvenient in the past, and the inhabitants of old Paris were probably quite happy to have some wider streets built. Likewise, today this neighbourhood is actually quite posh. Catherine Deneuve lives just round the corner. But it used to be synonymous with poverty and... The writer Henry Merger lived on this street and wrote Scènes de la vie bohème, Scenes from Bohemian Life, published in 1851. It was also later made into a movie, in which a group of impoverished artists struggle to get by, often heading to the Café Momus, where they are described as the bouvers d'eau, the water drinkers, as that's all they could afford. Something I also lived while studying at Jacques Lecoq. And we would go to a cafe and only one of our group would buy a coffee and the rest of us would get water as a way to save money. But I digress. So let's carry on down Duckling Street to number 18 and look up to see, sculpted into the stone above the entrance, an image. A little hard to make out at first, perhaps, as over the time the stone has worn. But look carefully and you'll see it's of a duck on a pond. Her wings outstretched, and I would go as far as to say, looking pretty happy. There are also three ducklings frolicking in the water, one on either side of her, and one with its head down in the water, tail up in the air, 
adorable. Now, this street has been known as Rue des Canettes since 1636, and this was attributed to a street sign, according to our faithful sign enthusiast, Bertie. However, although you will read that it is this actual sculpted sign that gave the street its name, this is not true. The one we are looking at at the moment is a replacement of the original, as this building only dates back to the 18th century, and it's been known as Duckling Street since the 17th. Now, the origins of the sign may well come from the legend of the duck, or canne, which means female duck in French, of Montfort. This legend was so well known that even avid letter writer Madame de Sévigny mentions it in one of her many epistles. So, what is the legend that lends its name to this street? La canne de Jeanne est morte au Guilanne. Montfort is in Brittany, in the north of France, and this legend goes back to around 1400. It starts with a beautiful woman who is pursued by the Lord of Montfort, but she is not interested. So, instead of taking the hint, he imprisons her in his tower. She then prays to St Nicholas for help. St Nicholas hears her prayer and decides to get her out of this mess by transforming her into a duck. She's then able to escape from her tower by flying out the window. From then, on every St Nicholas Day, the 9th of May, not his feast day, but the day of the translation of his relics, which I think means that they were moved, a wild duck would walk into the church, followed by her ducklings, and then in some sort of avian version of Sophie's choice, she would leave one as an offering. In 1652, so the story has already been going for a good couple of hundred years, the priest, Vincent Barlouf, rewrote the story. It starts off the same. The wicked nobleman imprisons the young woman. She, upon seeing the Church of St Nicholas through the window of her tower, prays to the saint for help, promising to go to his church to thank him if he frees her. Likewise, her prayers are answered. She escapes, somehow. This is brushed over. However, she is quickly recaptured by the henchmen of the nobleman. In desperation, she looks around for help, but only sees a couple of wild ducks on the pond and implores them to witness her ordeal and fulfil her promise to St Nicholas if she is killed. She is indeed killed. And from that day on, a duck comes each year and likewise leaves a duckling as an offering. This version where the young woman escapes miraculously but is not transformed into a duck was better adapted to Christian doctrine at the time. It's quite pagan really to be transformed into an animal. But the legend was still popular. Sadly, in 1707, the Benedictum Dom Lebino poured scorn on the whole story and slowly the legend of the duck became less and less popular and sightings of her became less frequent. She is last mentioned in 1739. Then, in 1750, the Evêque, the Bishop of Saint-Malo, banned it altogether. As to Montfort itself, it was called Montfort-le-Cannes for some 300 years. But when, in 1789, the Church of Saint Nicholas was demolished, it changed its name to Montfort-le-Montagne and then Montfort-sur-Meaux. There is another similar myth in a different part of the country about a wicked nobleman chasing a beautiful young woman who likewise prays and is saved by a miracle. Her foot is transformed into a goose foot and the nobleman is horrified by this deformity and leaves her alone. Actually, goose foot in French is pâte de which is also used to mean crow's feet, the wrinkles around your eyes. 
So did her foot change into a goose foot or was she just <gasps> transformed into an old woman, the horror? So this is the story of the Cannes de Montfort. And although this did not happen in Paris, it makes sense that this road leads directly to the church Saint-Sulpice. We can only assume that this might be a street that a potential duck might take should she wish to offer her offspring. Personally, I do not believe a duck would leave one of its ducklings behind. I think ducks make great parents, if somewhat accident-prone. YouTube seems positively full of heartwarming stories of ducks looking anxiously on as firemen rescue their progeny from storm drains or police help them cross roads all around the country. Of course, the mother duck could fly off, but she's grounded as the little ones cannot yet fly, and so she stays on the ground. Are these the actions of a mother ready to abandon her child just because some young woman made her promise to pop into a church to say thank you to St Nicholas? I don't think so. Anyway, they may have forgotten the noble duck, but not me. From now on, on the 9th of May, I shall remember this brave duck and celebrate appropriately. Maybe by going to the park and feeding the ducks. I hope you do too. Right, let's leave the ducks and head round the corner to Rue de Rennes, a wide, busy street going from Montparnasse, also to the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Now, I've been down it many, many times, but until I started researching this episode, I'd never noticed the ornate, if somewhat sad-looking dragon perched above the door at number 50. It is here as a melancholy and rather overlooked witness to a lost piece of Paris. Once, this dragon flew above a monumental doorway, the entrance to a picturesque courtyard and a passageway which joined the Rue de Rennes to the Rue Dragon just behind it. Rue Dragon is still there. It's a quiet, pleasant little street that has the distinction of not only having a great name, but Victor Hugo even once lived here. So between the Rue de Rennes and the Rue Dragon was a courtyard called the Cour du Dragon, or the Dragon's Court, and it used to be home to a number of stalls and workshops, including steelworkers, coppersmiths, as well as many lead and iron workshops. I'll put some pictures on my website and Instagram. It really was very charming. It was designed in 1732 by architect Pierre de Vigny, who also designed the gorgeous Hotel Chenizot on the Ile Saint-Louis. Definitely worth a look if you happen to be on the island. Maybe to check out the Rue de la Femme Sans Tête, for example. If you do go, you'll notice that the hotel has some lovely wrought iron balconies held up by dragon-shaped chimeras. He clearly liked dragons. Now, the symbol for the dragon for the courtyard, however, may have been chosen as it was originally opposite the Rue Sainte-Marguerite, a street that no longer exists. And of course, this would have brought the saint's story to mind and her symbol, the dragon. If you don't know about her, let me tell you, as it is a fantastic story. Personally, I did not know who she was, so a quick check in the Encyclopaedia Britannica revealed that she is none other than the original Mother of Dragons. Sort of. Here's her story. Saint Marguerite of Antioch, also called Saint Marina, the Great Martyr, dates back to the 3rd or 4th century. Little is known for certain about St Margaret's life, but she became an immensely popular saint in Western Europe following the Crusades. One of the reasons for this is that she's a patroness of one of the fundamental aspects of life, childbirth, and you'll see why in a moment. 
When Margaret turned 15, her beauty caught the eye of Ulberus, a Roman official of the region. Ulberus wanted to marry the maiden and attempted by persuasion to have her renounce her faith. But when she refused to do so, she was arrested, thrown into prison and underwent extravagant trials and tortures. It was during her time in prison that the devil appeared to St Margaret in the form of a dragon. But despite this terrifying apparition, she still refused to renounce her Christian faith. Different versions of what happened next are recorded. In one of them, the dragon was attacking the saint and was about to devour her when she made the sign of the cross, thus vanquishing it. In the other version of the story, the dragon actually manages to swallow her, but then, whilst she was in the belly of the beast, she made the sign of the cross, which caused the dragon's stomach to burst open. She was finally sentenced to death. First, they tried to burn her and then drown her. However, she miraculously survived, which caused many in the audience to convert to Christianity. These converts were promptly executed. Finally, St Margaret was beheaded. Shame there were no ducks nearby to save her, really. During the Middle Ages, St Margaret was grouped with 13 other saints to form the 14 Holy Helpers and became the patroness of childbirth, obviously because of the exploding out of the dragon bit of her story. She was evoked particularly in difficult labour, and I think we can all see why, and her emblem is a dragon. The other helper saints would aid with specific illnesses, and this probably started due to the plague. So, for example, you have St Christopher and St Giles to help with the plague itself, and St Denis helped with headaches, I suppose because he got his head cut off, and St Blaise for sore throats, etc, etc. It makes me really glad not to rely on praying to saints for cures, but rather to be able to go to any of the abundant pharmacies in Paris. Sadly, though, in 1969, Margaret's feast day, July the 20th, was eliminated because they decided it was doubtful whether she ever existed. Her story is now thought to be fictitious. Nevertheless, during the medieval period, she ranked among the most famous saints and her voice was one of those attested to have been heard by none other than the Pucelle herself, Saint Joan of Arc. The dramatic story of St Margaret has also influenced the way the saint has been represented in art. For example, St Margaret is sometimes depicted as stepping out from the stomach of a dragon. At other times, she's shown leading a dragon tied to a chain. Other images have the saint emerging from a dragon's mouth. You can go to the Louvre and see a fantastic painting of Raphael of her. So why don't we go and check it out before we move on? Here, in room 710 of the Denon Wing, we can see the painting. It shows the vanquished dragon lying on the floor, its gaping upside-down mouth pink and cavernous, and big enough to have swallowed a woman. Jonathan Jones from the Guardian series Painting of the Week describes St Margaret as standing, quote, victorious. Raphael based her pose on a sculpture of victory, deliberately holding a triumphal palm and tenderly stepping on the beast's wing with her naked foot. Raphael makes her beautiful and feminine, her gestures those of grace rather than suffering. Her body's contours are sensually visible under her bright blue and red robes, and her golden hair falls over her chest. Light pours into the dark ditch, focused on her, and she becomes a bright, womanly beacon in the demon-infested darkness. Raphael's painting is a vision of light defeating horror, 
beauty and reason-subduing monsters. What an excellent description, much better than I could do. Personally, I'm struck by the dragon's body, which coils horrifyingly around St Margaret, filling the picture with an unsettling dark threat. Its dead eyes are still open and stare out at us menacingly. Since we are here, though, in the Louvre, why don't we also go over and have a look at the original dragon from the Corda Dragon, which is over in room 105 of the Richelieu Wing. Because although the courtyard and the dragon escaped destruction at various turns, including the construction of the Rue de Rennes in 1853 and the widening of the Boulevard Saint-Germain in 1866, and after being categorised as a historical monument in 1820, it did not save it from demolition in 1934. The gateway and the statue were intended to be preserved, but the latter had become so brittle that over time it started to collapse into pieces during the dismantling process. For about 20 years the location was left as an abandoned lot and was eventually replaced by modern buildings and a commercial units in 1955. In memory of the site's history, a copy of the original dragon was placed over where the entryway to the courtyard once was, the last vestiges of the Cour de Dragon, and the original was brought over here, to the Louvre. In his excellent book, Walks Through Lost Paris, Leonard Pitt discusses the loss of the Cour de Dragon as a tale of urban vandalism, going on to say that until the 1920s, this was one of the most picturesque corners of the city. However, there is a note of hope, and one that I agree with. When the lovely Quarter Dragon was demolished, it was replaced by a frankly hideous 1950s building, which housed Monoprix, a supermarket. But Pitt explains that actually this horror is reason to be thankful, as it is a taste of what could have been. Paris, at one stage or another, would have had to have been redesigned and made more livable for the growing population. Narrow, winding streets are charming, but they're not really suitable for a modern, densely populated city. Pitt writes, quote, Despite his shortcomings, Hausmann's works can be seen as a preemptive strike, pulling the rug from under the feet of the real barbarians. End quote. I fully agree. Hausmann committed some terrible crimes, and we have lost much of old Paris. But Paris is nonetheless a beautiful city. Hausmannian architecture is lovely. Imagine if Paris had been rebuilt in the 1950s or 60s. It doesn't bear thinking about. Now, I've really enjoyed researching this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed listening too. I've also added two events to my calendar. Duck appreciation on the 9th of May, and why not dragon vanquishing on the 20th of July. Margaret, the Catholics may doubt you, but I will not forget you. So if you'd like to join in, do send me pictures of how you celebrate. Maybe some duck feeding, dragon disguises, i leave it up to you. There are so many more sculptures that have given streets their names, but we really do not have time for them all. But since we are at Rue Dragon, we could take a quick, short five-minute walk up the road to the Rue du Chache-Midi and end with a look at a sculpture where no young women get imprisoned or killed. And we can also learn a fun French expression. Not wordplay, but not far. The Rue du Chache-Midi has been called this since 1675, named after a painted sign. Today, here at number 19, we are looking up at a sculpted copy dating back from 1874. It shows a boy holding up a tablet on which a sundial is drawn, and a man presumably is looking for midday or drawing a sundial. Chache midi is also part of a French expression. Il faut pas chercher midi à 14 heures. 
Don't look for midday at two o'clock. In other words, don't complicate things. Perhaps our figures at number 19 are making their lives difficult by trying to tell the time with a picture instead of a real sundial. Or maybe it's more obscure French wordplay that goes over my head. You can learn more about sundials on my episode, The Immortal Clockmaker. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. And I also wanted to let you know that I've started a Patreon. Now, Patreon, in case you don't know, is a way to support independent creators. I love making the podcast, but the only way I can keep it coming regularly is with a little bit of help, as it takes a lot of time to research, record and edit. So I'll put a link to my page in the show notes. Now, as you know, each episode we take a metro ride to discover something new. So I'm asking that if you can afford to buy one round trip on the metro per month, then I'll be able to keep these episodes coming regularly. And for a little bit more, I'm offering bonus content, which I'm calling Extra Muros. And I shall take you to visit the chateaus or cathedrals or cemeteries, artists and anarchists that left Paris looking for cheaper rent or cleaner air and moved to the banlieue surrounding Paris. So, you know, think Monet in Giverny or Van Gogh in Auvergne or the strange pet cemetery in Anier. My first bonus episode shall be on the last peach orchard of Paris that once supplied peaches to kings and czars and still exists today. That's it for starters, but I have loads of ideas of how to make the podcast grow and bring you more exciting and original content. So I hope that with your support, we can make that happen. The podcast, however, will always remain free. So if you cannot afford a metro ticket, then don't worry. Just jump the turnstiles and come along for the ride. But if you are feeling generous, you could always leave me a review as this not only fills me with joy, but helps other people find the podcast. Finally, a shout out to Christopher. Now, I know you noticed it was me who makes this episode and yes, it shows. But hopefully with your help, we can make sure he stays on board and helps me in the future with all those technical things I find so tricky. But he's been busy doing exciting things, including editing a great podcast, which is even up for a Webby Award. If you're a parent and interested in parenting in a post-truth world, then give Liar Liar How to Raise an Honest Child in a Post-Truth Society a listen and even a vote. I'll also put a link in the show notes. As ever, I'll put pictures on my website and Instagram and do feel free to get in contact with me, share your thoughts and feedback. I love to hear from you. Take care of yourselves. Bye. <laughs>